welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. True inclusive leadership is thoughtful, deliberate, context-sensitive, and contributes to social change and communal healing. Akosua Adomako Ampofo describes herself as an activist scholar. Her work is informed by her faith and a commitment to what she calls social gospel. At the heart are questions of identity and power within families, political and religious spaces, and also the knowledge industry. Our conversation touched on many issues, African knowledge systems, masculinity, LGBTQ+, race, colonialism, and popular culture, to name just a few. But we barely scratched the surface of any of these complex and nuanced issues. Her message is clear, to discover and leverage our own individual agency as learners, and interestingly, as healers. It is a great pleasure to welcome Akosua to the Inclusive okay. Leadership Institute and to share great the conversation. Well, so let me ask you, as I ask everyone in these um, podcasts, um, what do you do? Thank you, Jörg, very much for inviting me to this and for the opportunity to talk about uh, what I do, because I love what I do and I like to talk about it. So obviously I'm an academic and so I teach and I do research. Uh, my areas of interest, if we distill them, you know, into little sound bites, I'm broadly interested in the issue of gender relations, gender power, inequalities and so forth. And within that, in the last uh, decade or more, I've been also very interested in looking at constructions of masculinities um, among young black men. Then I'm also interested in uh, my research and teaching in what, quote unquote, we might call African knowledge systems. So, um, you know, what, what makes knowledge African as opposed to anything else is really, and um, here I'm going to quote our first president, something he said when the Institute of African Studies where I work was opened, he challenged us to um, approach our disciplines in African-centered ways. And this was because as a pragmatist, he recognized that the, the university, you know, the modern university, if we call, well, you want to call it that, is a European creation. I mean, we can talk about ancient universities in Egypt and, you know, Sudan and so forth. But the modern university that we currently practice is a European creation. And it came with disciplines as they were um, formed and developed in Europe. And he knew that not every approach was going to be appropriate for our context and that, in fact, some of them might be inappropriate for our context. But this is the university that we had and we were not going to change it overnight. And so at the Institute of African Studies, we should approach our work by asking those questions very consciously from um, from a position of, of, of who we are and where we are in our context, politically, socially, and, and so forth. So, you know, this is really, um, you know, in a nutshell, 
the, the sorts of areas um, that I'm interested in. And of course, if we look at that, there's inequality in there, there's race in there, there's you know issues of poverty um, in there. Recently, um, this is not an area that I research, but from an activist perspective, and I consider myself to be a scholar activist, there have been issues um, in our nation um, related to you know, the citizenship of queer people, LGBTQ community, and how they are seen and, and treated and um, the options and opportunities that they have or don't have. It's, it's not something that I am academically trained um, to address, but these are certain issues of that I'm socially conscious about, you know, the environment and so on. So when I walk out of the academy, these are spaces that I inhabit with others where I will participate. You know, I will join a petition in my youth. I would be on a march, even though I, I wouldn't have necessarily have the scientific competence to deal with them. But as a human being, I care and I'll take part. Sure. So it's so fascinating. And we should probably tell the listeners that you're in Ghana, you know, located. I am in Ghana. I am a professor at the Institute of African Studies at the University of Ghana, which is where I've been since 1989. Yes. Oh, that's great. And so maybe we can we can talk a little bit about, I mean, there's so many questions that come up for me, but I mean, something you said was really intriguing to me. One is this European creation of the university and African knowledge systems how should we, I mean, especially for the non-scholars, um, you know, in, in the audience, well, how, how should they be understanding that conversation? And what it, what are African knowledge systems, I guess, would be a very basic question, perhaps. Yes, it's um <laughs> it's it's complex, but in, in a certain way it, it can be very simple. I'm going to see if this example might make any sense. So there's a former professor at the Institute of African Studies called Professor George Hagen. He was, you know, quite senior when I joined the Institute as a junior fellow. And he once told this story that I have used in a couple of talks and also in a publication of mine. So he says when he was doing his um, PhD in the UK, uh, I'm going to say Cambridge or Oxford, it was one of them. And he was a fresh student and they were at dinner. And he took a jug of water and served himself. And then um, a, a young man, one of his colleagues, kind of gently prodded and said, well, you know, from a polite perspective, you should serve others before you serve yourself. And then his response, uh, according to Professor Hagen, his response was that, well, where I come from, you actually have to drink the water first to see if it's okay before you serve <laughs> everyone else on the table, right? So that, that would be the human thing to do, make sure the water is fine. So in that small example, it tells you a number of things that, first of all, the water quality in different places is not necessarily going to be the same. You might also consider the fact that somebody who is ill-intentioned could poison the water <laughs> because they want, you know, they, they have some some um, bad plan that is afoot. And then thirdly, that these two different cultures obviously have different ways of looking at hospitality, right? He says that he made the point then, and I'm making the point now also, that it's not a matter of one form of hospitality is better than the other. It's just that they are different, right? 
And the fact that they are different means that you, um, and I think that this is something one of your other uh, speakers talks about, a curiosity that has embedded in it an interest in, in, in the human. So I, w- I want to understand what the other person's culture is, not just because I'm curious for curiosity's sake, but I want to understand them better, to be, a, to be in a better human relationship with them. And it will also make me less judgmental. It will open my eyes to see that there are different perspectives and that in some cases and in many cases, the other person's perspective, there could be a lot in it, not only for me to learn, but also apply um, in my own life. And, And this is important when it comes to knowledge, because there has been so much that has been assumed to be the correct way. Um, in science, in history, in politics, sociology, whatever it is. And the correct way is then imposed on another society. It doesn't work. It may take away their sense of identity. Sometimes it influences policy. And then we have, uh, you know, policy decisions that are so wrong because they don't fit uh, the social, the economic, political context of the people on whom they are imposed. And so it's it's so important for us to, you know, whether we were looking at climate change or gender issues or marriage systems, whatever, to fully understand, not just understand the societies, but understand, if you like, the, the science behind it, because they, whether we know it obviously or not, there is a sci- kind of science behind it. There's a philosophy behind it. There's a theory behind it, even if people don't articulate it. So, you know, that's kind of what it's about. I, I assume that this, and this wouldn't be a surprise actually, but this this almost this obsession with one singular truth is is a is a point of distinction between you know a European based knowledge system and perhaps a more relativist, high context knowledge system that that we could see in other places that even that thinking that you just articulate around relativism may be cultural yes and if i might may add it's also important um, you know from the from the optics of of things and how that makes you feel so today it's very fashionable you know to say i don't see someone who is like me and so i don't feel included That, of course, is extremely important. We didn't used to talk about it, but imagine going into a classroom, even though you don't see the photographs of the authors on the textbooks or the text you are using, you know, the names tell you that they are not uh, from where you are. And and sometimes even the descriptions about your society that you're reading in those books could be like, "Uh, that's not how I experience it. (laughs) Or worse still, could be very demeaning and and dismissive. I mean, we all know about the racist literature and so on, but these these are the kinds of things that um, Nkrumah recognized we would be contending with and we still contend with. So sometimes we have conflict might be too strong, disagreements with our colleagues. So my institute is multidisciplinary. We have this African-centered focus, as supposed to, right? We may have disagreements with our colleagues in sociology or history or political science or economics who are not necessarily, you know, there's there's almost an assumption that once you are in a university on African soil, then you are going to take an African approach. But that's not necessarily so. 
And so we sometimes have disagreements with our own colleagues about approaches, about methodology. It's like, you know, why would you use a quantitative survey to ask this particular question? You're not, you're not going to have anybody answer it. Or why must we insist that people sign consent forms when, you know, in, in that community, the consent form is is going to give an indirect message to the person that, why do you not trust me? Do you think that I'm lying to you? Or do you think I'm only doing this so that you can pay me? I said, I will speak to you about my knowledge and we've agreed to sit here. Why do I need to sign a, a, a piece of paper? Well, that's what the, the funder wants. And, you know, things things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really complex and it just also demonstrates the long shadow, historical shadow that colonialism has cast, right? Because it's almost this internalized attitude, <laughs> colonialism as well. Now, I'm curious because you mentioned all these different areas, including so, so the construction of masculinity, for example, among black men. How does that relate to, I guess, more broadly, the notions of sexuality and and you mentioned the LGBTQ issue, even though that may not be, you know, your scholarly focus, but your activist focus. But from an African-centered perspective, how does that relate or apply, I would say? If you're doing gender studies, at some point you're you're looking at issues of masculinity anyway, you know, whether you whether you foreground it or not. And so for me, I don't have biological sons. I have two biological daughters, but I like to think that I have a lot of children, the young people in, in my life. And, and part of what drives me is concern for, for their well-being and their livelihood. I look at the world and I'm like, what kind of place are we leaving for the next generation? Anyway, so what you read and what you heard and what I myself was working on that related to men was often very at worst, negative, you know, so you're looking at HIV AIDS. Well, men don't want to wear condoms, so women are getting infected. Uh, you're looking at family dynamics. Well, you know, men are very abusive. They are beating up their partners. And, you know, all of that is happening. And these are things that I myself researched, and these are the findings. Uh, maybe at a more uh, nuanced level, you'd have, you know, work about young men as fathers, um, providers and so on. But there was also sometimes a certain, let me say, either instrumental approach to it. So how can we make men better fathers so that blah, blah, blah. Or a certain paternalism, you know, wow, look at these guys. They are great fathers. They're actually, you know, hanging out with their little children. And um, of course, as a researcher, you know, it's it's more complex than that. And I was intrigued. And, you know, as my daughters were getting older, um, you know, and I'm getting more senior as a scholar, there are more issues that young men have in their lives that I'm becoming interested in. So, you know, I, I was interested to better understand what makes them tick, because we're all products of our society. We are, we, you know, we sometimes as, as women or as mothers, we complain, quote unquote, that the young men that we don't want our young women to date have been raised by other women who are like us. So, you know, the, the, the men, the young men that we, we are not happy with their treatment of young women or even of other young men have been raised by somebody. Some mothers, some grandmothers, uh, sometimes some fathers and grandfathers. 
you know, so so what is it that's going on with, with these young men? How do they see it? And of course, I would often hear the pressures that they themselves face to uphold these notions of masculinity that we know are often very impossible to uphold. You must be a provider, you must be strong, you must be all these things. And ju- just to hear their stories about, you know, what's going on with them. I had done some other work earlier, you know, at a more... Uh, objective, quote-unquote, quantitative level to see what was related to what. But now I just wanted to hear young young men's stories and um, in different parts of the continent and where I could. I'd had these conversations also in, I've had some in Germany, some in the UK, some in the US, mainly with young men who consider themselves to be African. They may be first generation, they may be passing through as students or whatever. And also to see how race was implicated um, in that and issues of sexuality. Of course, I was also interested in. Um, I have to say these these, um, conversations have, I go somewhere, I ask a colleague, can you find me some young men to talk to? (laughs) So I I don't have much say in some some instances I go somewhere and it's a conference and I pull a young man and yeah, I've had a conversation with, can you find some other people for me to talk to and so on. So these are very kind of self-selected groups, but there have only been two instances where there have been only two young men who have self-identified as same-sex loving or queer or gay or whatever. So I'm hearing stories about what we would what today we'll call cisgender men, right? So these are these are men who identify as straight, heterosexual, whatever. So I, I, I can't from that research, I can't say too much about you know a queer identity or queer life because there wasn't there wasn't that much to hear, but there's a little bit, you know, and then you 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 hear their stories as human beings and the nuances between um the power they have as well as their vulnerability and those who recognize that, you know, in, in, in spite of their vulnerabilities, they still do have a lot of power and room to operate. And it's just uh, work that I want to put out there. So these uh, conversations are being uh, formed into a documentary. And, and of course, there's also, anytime I've done work or spoken uh, on issues of masculinities, I get some pushback from, from some feminists because it's like, you know, we're, we're really not done with all the work on, on young women, right? And we, we don't want to decenter the conversation and put the spotlight on, on men as, as if they are the new victims on the block. And of course, this is not my intention, but I, I do have to be careful that I don't inadvertently, you know, creates some of that um, appearance. So it's 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 a balancing act to you know to put this on the table in the especially in the context when most of the work on gender was about men and women, right? That you don't you don't destabilize the space and and take the spotlight of the people who really are having a harder time, I would still say. Yeah, I mean, I'm just resonating a little bit. And again, not from the academic side as much as really from this uh, this per- pursuit of inclusive leadership or inclusiveness. It strikes me, I mean, in so many companies or in so many organizations, there there, there is the same tension that you are describing a little bit with 
the, the focus is on women and women's development, but the organizations are actually shaped by men and for men oftentimes, and the male experience doesn't really get discussed. And and it's that same tension, you know, and I oftentimes believe that in order to change things, we actually do need to, you know, add the voices and experiences of men, not to make them the new victims or 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 so, but actually to understand the the relational dynamics between the two and the, to get to the human core of some of that. Um, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. And to give them to give them voice, because I know there's always a tension. Should we give voice to the powerful? And how much space do we give to the powerful? Um, you said you have different questions that you raise, and, and one of them is why one does this. I, I think, and this I'm quoting um, from a, an interview respondent in another project that I'm involved in, that's Tracing Women's Activism in Ghana. And she says, there's just too much inequality in the world for us to focus only on our issues. And so, you know, powerful people also have issues. They may have different kinds of issues, but the kinds of issues they have impact us. So we need to understand them. We need to appreciate them. Not to, like you said, not to say, well, okay, you know, we're, we're giving you a pass. No, but you you need to be also at the table sometimes, not always, sometimes, and to have a table where you can also talk. Like when we're doing race, it's for years, one focused on race always from the other, I in the non-white. And um, it's important for people to do race work from the perspective of white people, but from a socially conscious perspective. And one of the things that drives me in the work on masculinities is the, you know, the hope, the prayer that the young men who participate in this, and some of them obviously are very conscious, especially those who haven't yet had this aha moment. You know, it's like in conversation, they're like, yeah, right. I think I should be doing more of this and less of that. And maybe I could do this other thing. And perhaps um, in my church or this community group, maybe we shouldn't be doing things this way. And for me, that's like where I want things to go, that the, the if you like, quote unquote, the oppressors, eyes go open and they're like, wow, I didn't realize that this behavior of mine was so oppressive. And perhaps I should be, of course, there are oppressors who know exactly what they're doing and have no intention of changing. We don't want to waste our time with such people, but there are indeed people who, can go through transformation. And I've seen it. And I think we're all on a journey, you know, all on a journey. We didn't arrive where we are today. We learned from other people. We've changed some of our behavior. We, I cringe at some things I've written in the past or things that I have said. And I'm grateful that there was no microphone on me. I'm like, wow, you know, is this what you really said <laughs> then about this you know, we're all learning and people need an opportunity to, you know, to express themselves, to be heard and to, to have the opportunity to, to transform themselves. I, I think oftentimes, not with everyone, like you said, but oftentimes the powerful or the privileged in certain cases, they feel 
excluded from the conversation about change and their experience not particularly recognized and acknowledged. And once that happens, actually change becomes possible because we can we can negotiate power. And, and I think it's such an important precondition. So, so now I need to ask you, and you were leading this a little bit, why do you do that? Why is that the focus of your work? <laughs> you know, I think for some of us, it's also built into our DNA. You, <laughs> sure. you, you, you see those kids on the playground who from day one, you know, they are making sure that nobody's cheated. But uh, more seriously, I don't know. It's the, it's, well, firstly, it's the discomfort with inequality because I don't like to be mistreated, you know, but also recognizing that somehow I can't enjoy my own humanity or my privilege to make it more practical to the max when the next person is having a hard time. I am the, the, the Shona, I believe, have this um, response to the greeting. When you ask the Shona of Southern Africa, you ask, um, how are you? And their response is, I'm well if you are well. So there's the, this, this recognition that um, or Ubuntu, you know, uh, our, our wellness together. It's a recognition that somehow I'll do better if everybody else is, is doing well. So that's maybe from a self uh, interested perspective, but I also I want this this world to be a fairer place. Um, that may be pie in the sky. We are idealistic. It's a, a nirvana. We may not achieve this side of heaven if we believe in heaven. But I think that there are enough people who care, who can do the work of social change, and that they need. Um, they need a number of things. Sometimes they need the permission, right? They need the permission to do what it is they want to do. That it's okay. It's okay for you to to go out and speak on behalf of queer people. Um, then they need sometimes the skills to do this. And and you and I know this that in in social media now, you know, there's a lot of people just jumping and shouting. They may not achieve a lot. A lot of hot air and noise, and um, not very much necessarily happening. And and this is not to this is not to discount that there's a lot of positive energy in in social media. So sometimes you 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 actually need to be trained to you know how can you lobby? What's the best way to do a petition? Who should you go to? Which one should go to parliament if you are? In a religious space, what can you do? So those kinds of skills. And, um, you know, also the awakening, because I was talking about a journey. Sometimes, oftentimes, most times, I think, we need these conversations, opportunities to walk in somebody else's shoes. Um, and we can simulate that, you know. We can simulate that through role play, through conversations, to a film that you watch just to awaken our consciousness about the other person and the shoes they are walking in and how we could do things differently or participate in, in something or sometimes not participate in something and shut up. That could also be important. Sometimes participating worsens a situation. And these are all things that, you know, one can do because I maybe I'm, you know, I'm somebody I can't sit still. And so to participate in, in being part of the something, um, you know, the action, this is the activist part of me. 
you know, it it, it also gives me a, a certain sense of of relevance. You know, I'm not just walking around breathing in the oxygen. I'm also participating in in in, in changing things for the better, and that's also important for my sense of self worth. And I think that's true for all of us in a sense, right? I mean, I'm I'm thinking about why I'm so enthused and focused on inclusive leadership. It's that same, um, I think, desire to contribute positively to creating a little more fairness and equity in a world that doesn't have a lot of it. And I think especially when you recognize those historical legacies we are standing on, you know, we 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 have the option not to look there or we to look there and then do something. And and that's I think what inclusive leaders do as well. And we can all make a tremendous contribution there. We can. And we look into history and see so many people who have done so. And and if I may add, because we live in a moment where there's so much frustration and pain, and if you're not careful, you feel like, why should I even bother? And, and something that I say to encourage myself and to others is, you know, the, the, the work that we do isn't only or necessarily so that we will see the results in our lifetime, right? Sometimes... You, you don't get to see it, but you may see a little light on, on the horizon that something might change. But because you are still hopeful that change will come, you continue. And if we look at, name anybody, you know, from Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Kwame Nkrumah, you know, whoever, uh, Wangari, Matai, they did not necessarily live to see all the fruits. They may have seen some change. They did not live to see all the fruits of their labor, but they sowed seeds. Some actions took place. They raised armies in the sense that many people bought into their vision and are continuing with it. And and I think that's extremely important to remind ourselves when we think there's no point, right? You know, all these political leaders are so bad. There's no point. Why bother? So I have two questions. And one is, how do you keep yourself motivated, I guess. I mean, doing this work of change, you know, as you said, I mean, it can be taxing, it can be difficult, it can, it's draining emotionally. And the the the, the change is not apparent, maybe in our lifetime, or at least not in the short term. So I'm just wondering how you keep yourself motivated. And then my second question was simply, what from your studies from your activism from you know what what are some practical advice that people who are listening to us right now could could heed could could apply um okay uh, what keeps me motivated perhaps i can distill it to two things one is i'm a person of faith so i believe in a god the god i believe in happens to be the christian god we don't have time to go into all the conflicts and difficulties about the way Christianity came to West Africa and, you know, all of that very problematic history with the missionaries and so forth. But anyway, at some point in my young adult life, I came to this faith. And uh, so so that is very important to me in terms of also um, social justice. I see, I see that as an important part of the obligations of somebody who calls themselves to be a Christian. Right. So I don't I don't for me, it's, it's like you really don't have a choice. You need you need to care. You have to do this. But it also means that uh, I, I I don't think 
uh, only in the in the worldly in that you know there's a temporal existence there's 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 an afterlife there's a, a god who i can trust who can look after me um you know times are difficult but somebody somebody will see me through and and i genuinely believe that and i feel that i have experienced that so that's one um also is just the impact on on people so you know if if and and i think this is what inclusive leadership is is about if i can see a difference in one life transformation in one person on a particular day at a particular moment i'm like wow this is you know i i feel good and i feel that you know what i'm doing is worthwhile and it's relevant and i see that person excel you know, five, ten years later, you see them, they are excelling. They still, they are people who care. They are making a difference. You know, it, it keeps you going. You feel like you're not wasting your time. At the end of a semester, I remember one class. I'm going to give two examples. My master's class in African studies on gender and culture in Africa. There was a time when we used to have a lot of teachers and a lot of pastors. Teachers wanted an, a, a master's degree so they could get promoted. Pastors felt that they needed to understand gender so they could solve problems in their churches, whatever, you know. They were not necessarily, they were obvious. A lot of these pastors were obviously very patriarchal. So they, when they would come to the class, they would be very heavily challenged by the text and, and, and often by other students in the classroom. Anyway, there was one who at the end of the semester said to me that his wife had said to him that he should come and tell me that she's very thankful that he has been in the class because she has noticed that there has been a transformation in the way that he lives as a person in their marriage, as a parent, as a pastor, whatever else. Right. So for me, I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's very heartwarming. Um, fast forward some 20 years, I was in sabbatical in the U.S., in a small sectarian school in Southern California, in a very wealthy part of Southern California. And uh, I was teaching a class that had been taught by a white man. There were very few Black professors in this school. Not only was I Black, I had come from Africa. And um, some students had to take that class. It was a required class. So they were not there because they were excited to take my class. And suddenly here I was talking about colonialism and slavery and uh, sexism and um, transgender people and so on. And, and there were people in that class who were offended and did not want to hear this stuff. They were openly hostile. They probably did not know this, but I would be going to class in the morning. I'm praying like, Lord, you have to take me through this class because I need to get this class done and I need these students to be quiet and to listen and whatever. Anyway. There was a student who, at the end of um, the course, a, a white young man who said something to me to the effect that uh, he thought, and I had interactions with him outside the classroom because he had some issues he was struggling with. He thought that I might have thought that he was some right-wing, redneck student, you know, hopeless case. And he wants to let me know that as a result of taking this class, his worldview, his attitude to the other, you know, has has been so transformed that he he really feels that he was called to take this class. And he is so grateful to me for 
helping him to see, you know, if if you like, what a jerk he was and how ignorant he was and that he, he really thinks that he's going to approach, um, you know, life differently. I'm like, wow, you know, I'm, I, I want to cry. You know, you're not wasting your time. And that really, you know, really energizes me. And as, and I, as I said earlier, I love to work with young people. You know, they energize me. They always have some new interesting thing that they are doing. And then if they are excited to be with you because they think they are learning, you know, it's just, it's just heartwarming. Um, practical things to do um, because I'm a, because I'm a teacher and I do training. Obviously, there's power in reading. Practically speaking, especially in this moment, post, you know, all the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, um, you know, anti-queer movements in many of our countries on the continent. There's so much material is like you have no excuse to be ignorant. Just go and read, you know. So practical things for people who want to bring about change, sometimes just put together. I'm going to call it, quote unquote, a syllabus. But I mean something less technical than that, you know, four or five simple bits that, you know, short pieces that people can read. Uh, Sometimes if it's biographical, autobiographical, it speaks to people. It's like a picture. They can understand the the, the experiences of, of other people that they had never for a moment thought about. A disabled person, you know, that you have judged or being on the street begging so, you know, what, what one practical thing is put material together for people to read. The, the reason I've been involved in, in film recently, and I talked about this film on uh, women's activism that I'm doing with a colleague, the director of the film is one of my PhD students. She's a filmmaker and it tracks the, or it speaks to the experiences of 16 women who came of age in the 1970s and their activism. And uh, my colleague is, uh, her name is Kate Skinner. She's at the University of Birmingham. She's an historian. So that's, she has this historical interest. And for me, it's the sociologist, the activist part. Anyway, two of the things that we wanted to do was break this myth about, you know, feminism being a foreign import to Ghana and also being something that is recent. So Beijing, the the UN movements, the UN decades and so on. Okay, that's what brought women's activism to Africa. No, that was that's not the case. Women were doing activist work long before that and in very interesting ways that people are not aware of today. It's like, why are we reinventing the wheel? As somebody in the film says, you know, when they are shoulders to stand on, just continue the work. There's no need to start again. And I find film to be such a potent way because especially in, in, in um, would I be saying bad things about young people? Young people don't read as much as we used to. And film becomes a very positive way. So if you can make a film, you can surely find a film that speaks to what your agenda is, you know, and share it and use that um, as a tool. Podcasts, I think, are amazing. And then having conversations um, with people, both to listen and to share, and also to build teams, to reference healing in these times of trauma. It has, um, Bell Hook says, we, we, we can't heal in isolation, we heal in community. And if we are to heal in community, we have to also suffer or feel other people's pain in community. 
And that has to be done in conversation of some kind. So, you know, depending on what your goal is, what it is you're trying to do, who you're working with, just bringing people around a table and have a conversation and possibly a series of conversations about uh, deep issues. And if people believe that you sincerely care about the topic that you're putting on the table, they will they will be vulnerable and share. And it's it's both a learning experience for the person who's facilitating or initiating this conversation, but also the people around the table are learning and hearing from, from each other. So that's, you know, that's just a few. And it's an opportunity to build teams to work together they kind of find who they have good chemistry with and they can work together to do things together it's so important that you highlight that it's not just about learning and we can be agents of learning but that through that learning we can be agents of healing as well that's i think an, an aspect to our agency that we that many of us may at least forget and we live in times where we need, all of us need healing. I, I know I need healing in many areas. I'm sure you need healing. And, you know, some of what we suffer from is self-imposed. But some of it is, you know, it's the world we live in. The world is not a fair place. And it's deeply historical as well. Deeply. And um, so we, we have to recognize uh, the pain and um, do this do this healing work. Thank you so much for, you know, just sharing this and, you know, taking us through your professional research, your personal motivation to this and focusing us on what what all of us can do and making this very practical. Um, And I, I really appreciate your time. I know that we'll hear a lot more from you and I'm so excited to have you part of what we do at the Inclusive Leadership Institute um so thank you for now thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed uh, this this conversation thank you so much thank you for listening you can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts just look for the inclusive leader podcast to find out more about the inclusive leadership institute visit us at www the inclusive leadership institute.com.